Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. When you're ready, you can have a seat. And all the introverts said, Amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy fall. It was cold. It was 64 degrees. Fall is coming. I guess you guys like humidity. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> My name is Craig. I get to be one of the pastors around here. And over the past several weeks, we have paused our John series, and we have been making a case for a local church. We've been inviting you to move from casual to committed, and from committed to connected. It is way too easy to stay casual. We've also pointed out we're living in a moment where so many of us experience loneliness and isolation. It's very difficult to find connection because it's becoming more and more foreign. Someone sent me an article in response to last week's message talking about the number of adult children who feel estranged from their parents. I don't even have to, you're like, I don't even have to fact check that. You're like, yeah, that's the reality we live in. We're growing more and more isolated. So we're making a case. What would it look like to find the place where you belong? There's an old Chinese proverb that asks this question. When is the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. As someone who is losing trees left and right, I feel that. When's the second best time to plant a tree, though? Right now. We live in a moment where there is an excuse floating in the air. We live in a moment where we all have this excuse that's keeping us from moving from casual too committed, too connected. What's that excuse? The times they are a crazy. Whew. You go to the grocery store, good help is hard to find. The shelves are bare, you're trying to talk to people, they're just cashed out. They may have the shirt on that says they work there. Their relationship is not what you're going to find there. And so we go, yeah, I can't get connected. Everywhere I go, I try to connect with people, and we can't. The times they are crazy. November 2024 is right around the corner. You know who the nominees are going to be. And you remember what happened the last time those two folks were the nominees. And you're like, oh, my gosh, it's just going to be crazy. How do we really find relationships in this moment. And so we let that be an excuse. The times, they are a crazy. I'm off the hook. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, we're looking at crazy times. God entered into his creation. Crazy. He builds a group of 12 disciples, followers, learners. He travels around teaching with them. One of those people 
who got to spend three years with God in the flesh decides to betray him. Now, I know you're living in crazy times, and I don't mean to minimize that. But if we can see how Jesus navigates truly crazy times, we may start to see how we can navigate our crazy times, which, by the way, are not that crazy. It's just an excuse, I think, for us. And we need to let that excuse go out to pasture. If you just even read U.S. history, we're not even living in the craziest of times. There's a, a person who's in this room who I was at their house, and they showed me a tree in their backyard. And they're like, see that tree? I'm like, yeah. That tree was planted the day after President Kennedy was assassinated on television, and the nation just entered into this mourning period, and someone didn't know what to do, so they planted a tree in, in memorial. It's like, wow. What are our crazy times? People don't get along, and YouTube has comments. I don't mean to minimize People are mean, and that hurts. But the times have always been crazy. And we need to stop letting that be an excuse for why we're not moving toward each other. But how? We see Jesus operating in crazy times, and he doesn't participate in the craziness. See, if we're waiting for permission, to be, oh, I'm just waiting for someone to tell me I can do this. I can get off the train and do something different. That's never going to come. If we're waiting for someone to say, oh, hey, yep, it is crazy out there. Relationships are hard. Yes, if you look at graphs, we're growing more and more isolated. Yes, church is in decline. It's like, well, whew, we're off the hook. Mm -mm. No, we, we actually, we can grow confident that that is exactly the time God has called us for and we will grow confident of what he's called us to. See, when we started this series, we said this. We're asking people to belong. Well, what are we asking you to belong to? We're asking you to belong to a church. What's a church? We say a church is a place where we learn loving presence. A church is a place where we experience God's loving presence in a special way that we don't in other places. And it's a place where we experience each other's loving presence. And that transforms us. And we said, great. Oh, wait a second. I've been to church, and that wasn't my experience. So last week, we said, yes, that's true. If you just Google things like church splits, you, you may be tempted to believe not everyone got the memo that church is a place where we learn loving presence. You may think, oh, church is a place where you have authority over the color of the carpet, and you get to fight about that with other people. You may have heard, oh, church is a place where we fight over secondary doctrinal matters that matter. Well, don't matter that much. So we say, well, how do we step into those scary faith places? And we said this, our confidence in God's presence empowers us to step into those scary faith places. He is with us. We say, great. Now we're going to push that a little bit further today. Our confidence in God's authority empowers us to change those scary faith places into loving presence spaces. And because that seemed like a lot less when I wrote it down on a piece of paper, I'm going to say it again. Our confidence in God's authority, as we grow more confident of His authority, 
We don't wait for permission. We have the authority to start transforming scary faith places into loving presence spaces. We don't need to wait for permission. We have it. The question is not, do I have authority? The question is, what are we doing with our authority? And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he shows us that he was deeply confident in God's authority. And so what does he do? He washes his disciples' feet. An act that seems almost insignificant to us. But in the process of doing so, he transformed a scary faith space into a loving presence space. He changed it. He just changed it. He's like, oh yeah, I don't do that, I do this. It's very hard to invent Velcro when you're on the run from a bear. <laughs> Jesus is with his ragamuffin, ragtag disciples. Half of them don't get it, and one of them is going to betray him. If ever there was a time to be like, you know what? I'm going to die tonight. Forget everything I've told you. Here's what we're doing. You guys got to listen to me. Look at me. Look at me. But what does he do? He teaches one last parable. It's a parable he taught on his knees. And he washes their feet. Because he was deeply confident in the authority God had given him. And when he finishes, he turns to his disciples and says, As I have done, you'll do. And you'll experience flourishing when you do this. That's a target we're aiming at from the real world. We live in reality. How are we going to do that? Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 17. How do we grow confident of God's authority? Jesus shows us that it's possible, and he also shows us how. John chapter 13. And if you would, please stand with me for reverence for God's Word. That was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. This is where we get a double entendre from John, the gospel writer. It means two things. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Two meanings there. He loved them to the end of his life, and he loved them ultimately. He loved them as far as love would take him. What does this love look like? The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his authority and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. 
You're never going to wash my feet, said Peter. Unless I wash your feet, you have no inheritance with me. Well, then, Lord, uh, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well. Do you hear the confusion? He has no idea what's going on. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you're clean. So there's confusion. Here's hostility. Though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. God, we see that you do create loving spaces. But Lord, our confidence is low that you are empowering us to create loving spaces. Be that around the Thanksgiving table. Be that at the office. Be that here. God, we need resources. We need your resources to feel empowered, to transform the places we step into into loving presence spaces. God, would you resource us this morning? Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. One of the problems, even if you're not even that familiar with the story of Scripture, one of the problems we encounter as we read the Bible, even if you're not that familiar, we sort of know how the movie ends. And so we read really shocking things as though they're not that shocking. We just read that God washed his disciples' feet. And we're like, yeah, okay. And then we also just read, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. So, if you would, please remove your socks. I hope you clipped your toenails and turn to your neighbor. They're going to wash your feet. I'm kidding. I am kidding. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, this is my worst nightmare. What exactly is happening here? See, overfamiliarity can just breed like this, like, <gasps> wash people's feet. You have to understand how shocking this was. In the first century, it was seen as degrading. We have no other example of someone of status washing someone else's feet. The closest we can find are objections to it. There was a rabbi who was named Rabbi Ishmael. He came home from work after a long day to his wife whom he loved. And she had a basin ready and she was ready to wash his feet. Like, what's up with all this foot washing? You have to remember, these are days before concrete. Everyone walking around in their Birkenstocks is walking around on dirt roads where also days before indoor plumbing. So people threw their garbage into the street. Also, when you sat at a table... You reclined with your feet hanging out, and your feet were kind of close to people who were eating and food, and this was gross. So you had someone wash their feet. It was seen as something incredibly degrading to do. Rabbi Ishmael comes home. His wife is like, I'm going to wash your feet. Rabbi Ishmael is like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
no way, you can't do that. She goes, I love you. He's like, I love you. That's why you cannot wash my feet. He was so troubled by it, he goes to synagogue and says, my wife wants to wash my feet. And they were like, no way. That's way too degrading. That's the work of a slave. Don't do that. And we don't see in antiquity anybody of status washing people's feet. We do see things like disciples in an act of extreme devotion. It was like, it was kind of like their Navy SEAL swimming down to the bottom of the pool. The hardest thing they had to do. Sometimes in an act of extreme devotion, they would wash their rabbi's feet. What do we see happening here? Verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In an act both of extreme devotion and humility, Jesus stoops down and humiliates himself to teach. He's trying to teach. There is never a bad time to create loving presence. If ever there was a bad time, this is it. We're on the run from a bear. You also start to see what's truly important to Jesus. What's truly important to him? Loving presence. He's about to die, and what's he doing? He's still working to create loving presence. The times, they were crazy. And that means this is the time to create loving presence. Well, how do we do that? Look at how Jesus did it, starting in verse 3. Verse 3 says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his authority. So he was highly confident in God's authority. That's number one. Number two, and that he had come from God. He knew his identity. So he's confident in God's authority. He knows his identity. And then he knows his destiny. Number three, and that he was returning to God. Jesus' confidence in God's authority empowered him to transform a scary faith space. These are disciples, one of whom is trying to kill him. The other disciples who are not trying to kill him, bless them, have no idea what's going on. I'll take a bath. It's like, I don't know what we're doing, bro. It's a scary faith space. There's hostility, there's confusion. But his confidence in God's authority empowered him to transform the space. Authority would not be what you or I would say, hmm, that's what's missing. You know what's really missing from my life? You know why I don't experience much love? I need more authority. Part of that is because we live in a part of the world where our core identity stems, like, like America's national anthem could be, I don't need your authority. Green Day? No. I tell you, that's just the worst. That's a great classic. Okay. Anyway, Americans are naturally suspicious of authority. Well, who are you to tell me what to do? What, are you trying to tell me what to do? I don't like that. That's one thing we've got working against us. Thing number two working against us. We've not really experienced much life-giving authority. My friend Justin likes to say it like this. It's not authority because you yelled at me to do something. And that's how a lot of us have experienced people in charge. I worked really hard to get to this position. I put in a lot of overtime. Now that I'm here, I get to treat you like I was treated on my way up here. Which, by the way, is not life-giving. 
And so we're saying, wait, confidence in God's authority helps us create loving presence? I don't understand that. Jesus helps us reframe authority. He clearly says he was confident God, there's nobody up, there's nobody above God. That's the top of the ladder. God gave him all authority. What does he do with that authority? He takes off his outer garment, rolls up his sleeves, fills the basin with water, takes the role of a slave. And he's reframing authority. We see four things authority does in this passage. Biblical authority is not, I worked really hard to get here, so I can yell at you and tell you what to do, and I'll add Bible verses to it. That is not biblical authority. Just because we have a cross-reference doesn't make it biblical. Biblical authority here is warm and nurturing. Where do we get that? Verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world. So we already have the word love here. Having loved them, what, is that, what did he do next? He loved them to the end. They're scared. They're having a Passover meal. He has just said his hour has come. What's that hour? He's going to die. It's a scary place. But what's he doing? Looking out for others' needs. That's biblical authority. If you experience authority that is harsh and cold, we need to start asking, is this biblical authority? Does it look like John chapter 13? Is it warm and nurturing? The second thing we see about biblical authority is that it establishes clear limits and expectations. When we throw off authority and we're like, no one's going to tell me what to do, I'm going to be totally free. We get to live with the noose of freedom. Sometimes being totally free is not all it's cracked up to be. A football game without out of bounds becomes chaos. A school with no adults in it slow, quickly becomes a hazardous waste site. Loving authority does establish clear limits and expectations. Look at what happens in, after Jesus finishes washing their feet. Verse 12, when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He's going to explain. I just took on the role of a slave. Nobody, you've never seen anybody with status do this. I have a lot of status. I did this. Look what he says. You call me teacher and Lord. That's not what I am. I'm, I'm actually just here to wash your feet. No, look what he says. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. He doesn't surrender his authority, but he's using it differently. He's not using it to gain something from us. He's using it to nurture and serve and care. And in doing so, he establishes limits. He's saying, this is life, that's not life. Loving authority does that. Number three, for loving authority. Loving authority reflects a shared understanding of goodness. Look at verse 16 and 17. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus is saying this, I'm not that type of leader that's a do what I say, not as I do. We create loving presence because Jesus is loving presence. He reflects goodness. God is good. 
And in his presence is life. And he's inviting us to create, create that. He, it's not divorced of his character. It flows out of his character. And when we're confident in his authority, that this is who he is, this is what he's doing, as we grow more confident of that, we can step into Thanksgiving meal. I know it's only September, but I'm ready for fall. We can step into a Thanksgiving meal and we can see ways that as a family, we operate which no longer serve us. And we can say, I don't want to participate anymore. Well, who gave you permission to do that? Says mom. I made the turkey. And we can say, when God stepped into a difficult space, he gave me permission. This is how he uses authority. I have authority. This is how I'm going to use it. And number four, what do we see loving authority doing? It treats others as ends, not means. Treats others as ends, not means. Part of why authority can go off the rails so quickly is because people in charge treat people not in charge as means to an end. We need you so we can get somewhere else. We need you to do your job so then I get a bonus at the end of the quarter. Rather than saying, we're relational beings made in the image of a relational God. And relationship is an end in itself. We are people who've been united back to God and the gospel also unites us back to each other. And that connection that we're aiming at is the goal. We think there's life there. That's biblical authority. And Jesus is modeling that when he washes his disciples' feet. You and I have just been presented with the ideal. This is what we're shooting for. We live in a world where things go bump in the night. It is crazy. But we want to learn to be confident in God's authority. No one's going to give us permission, but we can transform the spaces we're in. And I've been to some of those spaces. I've heard things that get said in those spaces. I live in many of those spaces. How do we close the gap between what Jesus is creating, what he's inviting us to, and where we really live. What does that look like? Sometimes we look at the gap and it seems insurmountable. Like, hey, preacher, I hear you saying we need to, like, you know, use our authority to love and serve people, even if they don't understand us or even if they're scary. I hear you saying that. But I don't believe you. Baloney. The invitation of this passage the graciousness of this passage is that change doesn't happen overnight. We're allowed to live in our neighborhoods and take steps toward life. Look at what Jesus says here. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Peter has no idea what's going on. 
has in the foggiest idea. We know what, we, those of us who know the rest of the story know what's waiting for Peter. He's like, Jesus, I love you. I'll do whatever it takes. And then hard times come. He's like, oh, I, I forgot something over there. And he still, Jesus still enters this space and he still says this. We need to be gentle with our weakness. Sometimes when we hold up the ideal, it can be crushing. I got to spontaneously love difficult people. Oh my goodness. How am I going to do that? See, that's what this passage has in mind. There are people in this room who are not difficult at all to love. There are people in this room who we see coming and we're like, oh my gosh, whatever they ask, we're going to totally do because they're just such a joy to be around. We don't need any instruction to love those people. There are other people, not in this room, Yeah, not in this room. There are other people who we see coming, and all of a sudden the wall gets so interesting. Oh, if they talk to me, that just is going to ruin my week. It's over. How do I get out of this? That's who we need help learning to create a loving presence for difficult people, like Judas, who's harmful. And like Peter, who's confused. How do we actually do that? Well, I had a master class in that earlier this week. It finally happened, folks. I knew it was going to happen. I have been waiting years for it to happen. And it finally happened. I became the subject of some preacher on TikTok's discernment video. I know, right? I had been waiting. I said, it's only a matter of time. We're putting these sermons on the internet. It is only a matter of time before someone's like, and you know, and it happened this past week. Someone on our team came to us and said, hey, do you want to see a video where somebody took it and they're saying how everything you're teaching is not biblical? I was like, uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And they were like, well, how should we respond? And Right, so I haven't seen the video, but this is how the video goes. We, there was like a 30-second clip that they took, and then they posted it, and they said, you know, some preachers just want to tickle your ears, which if you're familiar with the New Testament, it's not a good thing. They just want to tickle your ears, like this guy. And then it goes, here goes me saying something. I don't know what it was. I say something, and then they're like, here's all the reasons that's not biblical, and this person didn't even read the text. And like, ow. We really love the Bible around here. We're trying to, we believe that the Bible transforms us, not me. We're trying to really dive into that. Ow. So I was thinking, well, what do you do with this? Like, what's a, you know, what's a good way to respond? Because I've seen bad ways to respond. You know, defensiveness usually is not a great idea. Well, you'll see. And so I was riding my bike by Bonnie uh, Nature View. And I was just praying, like, Jesus, what's a good way to respond that we don't waste this moment? That can be deeply formative. And I just sat there just like, okay, help, help, me, help me get it. And it just came to me. I was going, I was going around the, the turn where the deers jump out, so I was like hyper aware. And I'm going down around the corner, and I just I felt the Spirit of God saying, what if we prayed for the fullest blessing of Jesus on this person. Now, we know that's the Spirit of God because I'm like, 
I don't know if I would have thought of that on my own. I'm like, okay, let's think about that. What does that look like? And then, you know what was amazing that started happening? I started getting curious about this person. And not like sadistically, like I wonder where he lives. <laughs> you know, I bet this person has people he's responsible for. He's trying to pay his bills. I, he didn't, he, I bet he's just like, has people he cares about and is trying to teach them what he thinks is biblical. I started getting empathy and curious for this person. And then I started saying, oh, the point of discipleship is that that reaction, which took me a couple hours, becomes spontaneous. Where Jesus is in a scary faith space. They're coming for him. And he spontaneously goes, my disciples need one more lesson. I'm going to get on my hands and knees and show them how right away, any time is the time to create a faith, a safe space for people to experience loving presence. We don't have to wait for it. The goal of discipleship is just to close the gap between how much time passes and when we start seeing Jesus just flow out of us. And there's a lot of grace for big gaps. We need to be very gentle on ourselves. What a joy that we even recognize, oh, there's a gap here. That's growth, and that's beautiful. We're way too quick to be like, I'm the worst. I never would respond like that. I don't think that's true. I think if we know Jesus it spills out of us and we're not aware because it's who we are. And I think reminding ourselves and reminding each other who we are moves us in that direction, which is why one of the things we're encouraging folks to do in these next couple weeks through this series is we're encouraging you to draw your church story. What's been your experience with a community of faith? Has it been life-giving? Has it been hard? Has it been great? Has it been bad? And what I hope you'll see is there's lots of different experiences around this room. Lots of different experiences. And together, as we see each other's stories, we can say, oh, look, no, I see God moving in your story. So drawing our stories is another way to get at this. We can tell our stories, but if we were to have to draw our, our story, what would that look like? If you would it, would it be colorful? Would it be dark? Lots of edges. How would your faith story, how would your church story be drawn? Where would you see God moving? So if you want to draw those, you can submit those to info at compassefc.com. Info at compassefc.com. We'll show them in a service in two weeks, some of them. And again, we'll keep them anonymous. But we just are curious, what's your faith story? Maybe write up a little explanation of how you've seen God working in your faith story. Because my suspicion is, you'll, when you start telling your faith story, your church story, you'll see him working a lot more than you were aware of. And that's just the thing with authority. When it comes to authority, we're constantly waiting for permission. But when Jesus got up and washed his disciples' feet, and he turned to us and said, do likewise, and if you do, you'll experience flourishing, he gave us all the permission we'll ever need. You're going to step into a situation at work, where you are, you are working overtime, you're doing all these things for no credit, 
And someone else that you work with comes in and takes all the credit for that. How do you, in a, in a space that is not acting in your best, how do you create a loving presence there? One of the pushbacks that I've been getting from this series, it's, it's, it's happening again and again, is I hear this, and this is really nice, but how in the world are we supposed to do this? You're saying belong, like, I'm in a season in life where I just don't have any bandwidth to actually belong. So, like, this is really a nice idea, but how do we really do this? You know, there's people who are like, I have young kids, I'm in a season where I belong, You're, we're just lucky I'm here. What does it actually look like to create and experience this? We trust the process. When we are growing confident in God's authority, that He has commissioned us, say, create loving spaces anytime. When we just start to do that, we've created loving space. We've already done it, and we have the authority. We have the permission. The question is not, do you have authority? The question is, how are you using your authority? Are we being passive? Like, oh, no one told me I, no one told me I can say this isn't how we do things here. Or are we jumping in and saying, I'm not going to do this. We're going to do this differently. And I don't know how it's going to be received. As Christians, I think Christians so often are like sleeping giants. It's like, oh, man, there's like a, there's a knight coming and the knight has like a metal armor and that's really, that's awful. Like, You're a giant. You, you have the presence of God living and working inside of you. And you went to your family's Thanksgiving where there's no presence of God, it feels like. If only you believed it. Our confidence is so low. I was talking to my best friend, my childhood best friend, earlier this week. It was his birthday. I called him on the wrong day. And then he called me on the right day. I know, right? Why couldn't he just picked up? So we started talking. And my my childhood best friend is very high up in some, like, secretive military stuff. I have no idea what he does. When we were in high school, we were playing Call of Duty, like, in, uh, in our other friend's attic. And he, my best friend said, I can do this with my life. And we're like, huh. yeah, yeah, right. Fast forward about 12 years, I'm sitting in a coffee shop in Louisville, Kentucky, being interviewed I don't know if it was the CIA or the FBI or national security, somebody, and I was being interviewed to give him a security clearance. And I made them suspicious because I knew too much about him. They're like, what's your friend's full name? Russell Thomas Edward Batson. Where, did, where was his childhood home address? 9 Easy Street, Epsom, New Hampshire, 03306. And I just watched a government official freak out. Like, uh-oh, like, he thinks I'm in Al-Qaeda. So whenever I talk to my friend, it's like, oh, where you been? He's like, oh, I was in you know, French Guiana, I was in Turkey, and I never ask questions because I don't know who's listening, and I don't want to die. <laughs> so we're talking, and I was like, hey, like, how's your birthday been? He's, well, I'm just getting home. Oh, where you been? Well, I've been in Minnesota. Oh, okay. Well, what's it like coming back home? Man, I just feel spiritually stagnant. What do you mean? I just look around and I feel like I'm just so obsessed with like safety and materialism and are my kids going to be okay and am I making enough money to retire? I'm just so obsessed with that. I feel like God has just been moved out of my life. 
I don't feel like I'm doing it. I feel like I'm spiritually dead. Oh. Hey, what were you doing in Minnesota? Oh, it was actually really cool. Uh, it was kids of military parents, specifically military dads, who died. So if, they were, if, if there was teens and preteens, his friends started a nonprofit that pre, uh, preteens and teens, if they had a dad in the military and their dad died, this was a camp for them. Like, oh, how did the parents die? Like an act of duty? He said, some of them. Some of, one, one kid I talked to, his dad did something really bad that he thought he would, couldn't get out of, and so he took his own life. So it's kids in trauma. Oh, my gosh. Well, what did you do with these kids? Oh, it was incredible. We took them hiking. We, we did all these high ropes courses, and it was like faith-based. So at the end of it, like, I got to be like, hey, I'm doing this because I love Jesus, and a lot of these kids gave their life to Christ, and we tried to connect them to youth pastors back home. Like, no kidding. You feel like you're spiritually stagnant? He's like, what? Like, Russell, you used your authority. You entered into a space I could never enter into. I come in there, I'm like this goofy pastor, like, oh, look, kids. They're like, we don't care. But, but you're somebody who, who carries authority. They look up to you. And you're telling them, hey, this is a hard world. But people care. And people move toward you. And when things don't go as they should, that's not always the end. And God sees you. And because God loves me, I'm stepping into your space. You stepped in with authority and did that. You say, oh, yeah, I guess. Compass, friends. We do not have to wait to get authority to transform the spaces we're in into loving present spaces. And I really think you're probably doing more of it than you're aware of. We are way harder on ourselves than God is on us. Oh, you know, I'm just like the worst. That's why we need each other. The late, great Timothy Keller once said this, God's glory is present everywhere. But it's present in a church in a way that it's not present everywhere else. We get to tell people loudly and clearly, God's not done. He's still working. He is for you. He's coming after you. He's on your side. He's relentless. Jesus, we need help for our confidence to grow. We need help trusting your authority. God, there are so many moments, so many moments when we feel that we are in it alone. God, I pray that as we take communion together, that would be a, a healthy correction for us, that we would experience your presence, that you loved your disciples to the end, you loved us to the end, and we would remember that love as we partake of this meal together. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.